If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. A lot of people are not seeking the help that they need um, because they're so ashamed of their body not working in the ways that they thought uh, it should work. And so they're actually prolonging the time that they actually seek treatment. And that is really like my passion of like, let's not wait. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast empowering nurses to manage stressors so they can intentionally reconnect with their purpose, optimize their wellness, and ultimately show up in the world the way they want to be seen. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, your stress solution strategist. In this podcast, you'll receive actionable stress management tips, insightful interviews, and strategies that focus on inspiring you to be your best, do your best, and give your best. With that, let's get started. Good morning. Welcome, Dr. Maureen. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited for our conversation. You are doing such great work um, in the world and so excited to bring you to the wellness world here on the platform. <laughs> so. Yes. Why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about who you are? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Wendy, for bringing me on here. Super excited to share with your audience everything that I do. So my name is Maureen Siebert. I am a nurse researcher of infertility. Um, the, the term that's you know out there in the medical field is reproductive endocrinology, but I mainly study disparities and equities. And um, I'm a PhD trained nurse researcher. I uh, got my postdoc in this area as well, too. And uh, it's just a passion of mine to help with decision-making processes um, surrounding infertility and getting treatment or whether you should egg freeze and anything within the realm of assisted reproductive technology. I love that. So Dr. Siebert, what made you get into this field? What what, what drew (laughs) you? This This is very unique and different. People don't come out of nursing school saying, you know, I want to get into, you know, reproduct well you say labor and delivery that's what they usually mm-hmm. say right so how did you how are you drawn to to this work yes this is a really great story that i love telling um out of nursing school i went to boston college school of nursing i was just trying to make it like i wasn't even thinking of you know specialty you know that we <laughs> understand to make that it to the NCLEX. yes and so i was um blessed enough to actually become an er nurse straight out of nursing school um, and so I did, you know, a new grad nurse residency and about 
a year and a half into the residency, um, I wake up one day and I just have bad right-sided pain. And from my own assessments, I'm like, okay, great. I have an appendicitis. Uh, I was supposed to actually work that day. I called in. I'm like, hey, I'm calling out sick, but I'm calling in because I need a bed. <laughs> and um, sure enough, immediately the physician, I remember when he said it, he was just like, no, this doesn't look like an appy. This I feel like there's something with your ovaries in that area. And so uh, sure enough, after an ultrasound, CAT scan, and MRI, uh, we came to the conclusion that there was this grapefruit-sized tumor on my right ovary that was causing the pain, and they couldn't um, completely figure out if I was torsed or not, or if the ovary twisted on itself. And so uh, sure enough, uh, within 24 hours, I was in surgery, and I came out, and I remember the GYN surgeon uh, looked at me. She goes, great. Everything is awesome. We were able to take out um, the tumor. It looks it looks benign, but we'll send to pathology. And it ended up being benign, uh, thankfully. Um, and then she goes, uh, your ovary was torsed. It was twisted on itself. And thankfully, we were able to save it. It had good blood flow. And so when she said that, I was just like, oh, there was there was an opportunity for me to lose my ovary. <laughs> like I had no idea, like that wasn't really discussed in like the pre-op uh, consultation. And then from there, I don't know, it just, it settled with me. And uh, because of the size of it, I actually had to take six weeks off of work. And one day, maybe in like the third or fourth week, I kind of just like said, whoa, what if I lost my ovary? Could I still conceive? And then from there, I really, I it was really a God moment for me. I just found all of these stories that were written in like the New York Times and all that stuff about fertility. And what I noticed in the peer-reviewed literature, when I go into like PubMed and uh, CINAHL, there was nothing about Black women's experiences mm -hmm. with fertility, despite you know, a few New York Times articles saying that Black women had the highest rates of infertility. Um, and so from then on, I was just like, okay, I found my passion. So I literally pivot from an ER nurse and I got a really great scholarship to Winston-Salem State University through the Bridges to the Doctorate program. Uh, that's where I became a family nurse practitioner and was able to garner skills and research. And I was able to apply it ultimately at Duke University, where I got my PhD uh, studying infertility, specifically in Black women and factors that affect their decision making. Mm. Wow. I love that. <laughs> and when you started talking about PubMed and Sinal and, and all those platforms that we look for, you know, our research as healthcare providers, I was thinking maybe those stories aren't on there because no one's really doing them. But are there other stories like have women, you know, written blogs? Are you finding anything like that or any like self-published articles where they're telling their own story? Yes, I was uh, I was finding those. And eventually when I did start at Winston-Salem State in 2015, um, serendipitously, uh, there was a researcher, Dr. Rosario uh, Sabalo. She's out of the University of Michigan. Uh, she is, I believe, a psychologist um, by training. And uh, she ended up doing um, some really great work just examining uh, low-income Black women and low-income groups uh, experiencing infertility. So I had that one article that I was basing mm -hmm. like everything on. So I cite her like all the time. And I fangirled when I finally met her a couple of years ago. I was like, yes, okay. thank you. <laughs> um, but there were a few blogs um, at that time. The, uh, the first people that actually supported my work and I reached out to was... Uh, 
Dr. Reverend Stacy uh, Edwards Dunn. She's out of Chicago and she has a really great group that's still running today called Fertility for Colored Girls. And um, I ended up being mm. in Chicago for a wedding uh, during my master's program. And she was just so gracious and supported me. She says, yes, this work is needed. And to this day, um, she's definitely a champion. So uh, she actually wrote a book on uh, the experiences um, of Black women, specifically Christian Black women who experienced mm -hmm. infertility and all the different outcomes that they experienced. Some, you know, ended up with a child they were able to conceive and some adopted or some chose to be childless as well, too. And so she gives really great perspectives as well. Yeah. What are some of the contributing factors, um, you know, for Black women having the highest rates or incidence of, of infertility? Yeah, so I tend to put them in two different buckets. So there's like the physiologic bio biology. So we'll we'll talk about fibroids, right? African American mm -hmm. women experience the highest rates of fibroids, and fibroids themselves aren't going to cause you to be infertile. It's all about the location of them. So um, just in regular terms, uh, if the fibroid is just in a layer of the uterus, that won't allow it to expand with a pregnancy. So that's where um, you'll find somebody who's able to to get pregnant but they can't stay pregnant. And so they have challenges, um, especially at different growth spurts of the baby growing and they're not able to kind of continue with the pregnancy. Or the fibroid itself might be blocking where conception can occur um, or, you know, blocking, um, you know, the embryo from actually like being able to attach in different areas, if that makes sense. Uh, also mm -hmm. endometriosis, um, you know, having that amount of pain and sometimes the endometriosis like tissue can be also a blockage to the fallopian tubes. So then now, you know, the sperm and the egg are actually never able to meet. Um, and so there, that's um, another issue. And, it, and what's so interesting is that endometriosis doesn't really happen highest doesn't have a highest incidence rate in black women it actually it's higher in other groups we but we actually have higher severity of symptoms so that's very interesting mm. yeah mm. um and then you have uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome uh commonly referred to as pcos that is um affecting the ovulation. Uh, you know, having PCOS doesn't necessarily make you infertile, um, but you'll have challenges with trying to time conception just because you don't really know when you're ovulating. Because um, some women with PCOS, they might have a menstrual cycle, like a complete menstrual cycle of the ovulation and the bleeding, um, maybe three times a year, three or four times a year. So as you might assume that's really difficult to kind of track as well too. So you have a few of those biological um, challenges. And then there's some social and emotional challenges as well too. Um, one versus a lack of knowledge. Um, I, I don't know how many people I've spoken to. They're like, hey, me and my partner are trying to have kids. And I'm just like, okay, so when are you, you know, having into, I really get in there. I'm getting like, you know, intimate into their details. And I'm like, so when are you having intercourse? They're like, oh, you know, when we feel like it sometimes on the weekends. And I'm like, no, you need to time ovulation and track that, you know, there's only a small window of time you can actually conceive. And so some people are, aren't necessarily infertile. They're probably just having intercourse at the wrong time uh, of the month. Um, and then the social emotional of shame. 
uh, and stigma, a lot of people are not seeking the help that they need um, because they're so ashamed of their body not working in the ways that they thought uh, it should work. And so they're actually prolonging the time that they actually seek treatment. And that is really like my passion of like, let's not wait. You know, the guidelines say six months of trying and not conceiving if you're older than 35, and then one year if you are younger than uh, 35 as well, too. And what most people don't realize is that you know, IVF and IUI and all these different things that I could talk about later, um, their their rate of actually succeeding decreases as you wait over time and as you get older. Wow. Wow. This is great information because fibroids, yes, definitely. Endometriosis, yeah. So people aren't talking about those. I think they're just starting to talk about them a little bit, not even a lot. But what should, you know, young women, I'm thinking about young women who have these diagnoses who kind of like just poo-poo them, right? But mm-hmm. as you poo-poo them and, and you're not attending to them, it only gets worse as you get older. What should they be doing? And I think, you know, some of our listeners for themselves or even their daughters who, you know, they're raising, what, how can we be advocating for ourselves um, going to the GYN office? Like, what should we be saying? What questions should we be asking? Absolutely. And it does start with our daughters. Um, uh, you know, I, at, at different points, I had to pick up jobs because of grad school and all that stuff just to <laughs> pay the bills. And so one of them was like school nursing. And so one thing that I realized is that um, in the high school age, um, people's menstrual cycles, they're so painful. And they kind of, we often as a community, one, we have our issues with like pain management, people taking us seriously, but we also have issues of like us tolerating a bit too much. You know, our menstrual mm. cycles should not be uh, affecting our lives where we have to literally take off of school and work for that week um, that we are menstruating. Uh, we should be really trying to uh, explore what that is. Sometimes it can be endometriosis. I've met so many women who finally get their endometriosis diagnosis in their 30s, and they're like, I've been in pain for nearly half my life. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize it was because of this. And at least at that point, you can have a baseline understanding of your anatomy. Uh, is it getting better or worse? Um, they're still trialing different treatments for endometriosis. Um, but at least you could um, start freezing your eggs. Um, I always tell people mm. it's it's never too early to freeze your eggs, but there is a time where it is too late and people need to understand that. And so if you, know, you end up having, for example, endometriosis or fibroids, at least you've frozen your eggs. Um, so as you kind of figure out different treatments and all that stuff, you have helped get insurance for your fertility as well. Um, and then also thinking about age and your goals. And this is where my company kind of was birthed out of really defining your goals for fertility. Um, There are some people who do not want to have children and they've known that and all, and they are very clear about that. That's fine. Um, But there's also people who they don't know. (laughs) They're not sure the different circumstances that they would or would not. And so my goal is to really help people define that. And then from there we can work backwards. Okay. You want to be the one that actually holds your child in your uterus, uh, what we call the gestational carrier, right? So then that means we need to make sure your uterus is okay. That means we need to, you know, freeze your eggs. We need to ensure that you have a complete, um, 
you have given yourself the best chance to achieve your goals as well, too. I love that. And when do you think people should start talking about fertility? Um, Because, you know, I think just in society, you know, we go to school and it's like, when are you getting married? Then it's um, when, when are you having babies? When are you getting the house? All these things. And I feel like what you're doing, and it's making me think that women need to feel more empowered to to kind of be in control of their fertility. It's not like an afterthought, but whether you're in a relationship, not whether you're married, well, whatever it is, because you don't have to be married to, you know, conceive, right, or, or be a mom. Mm-hmm. When should we start thinking about our, the health of our, um, like, ovaries and fertility? And, like, when should we seek you out? Yeah, um, at any time, honestly, um, a high schooler could seek me out. And that could be Mm -hmm. a moment of educating them because right now sex ed, especially in the US is very anti pregnancy. So it's more so don't get pregnant. (laughs) Do not Mm -hmm. get pregnant. Um, But it's, it should really the conversation should just be like plan out when you want to have a healthy pregnancy. And I think from there, you'll make decisions of whether you want to be on birth control or whether you want to be abstinent. Um, and how often do you get tested for STIs because uh, pelvic mm-hmm. inflammatory disease, right? That leads to infertility, but you get to PID when you have untreated gonorrhea and chlamydia as well too. So um, really mm-hmm. having these conversations as early as possible. And um, for my friends, I've had a couple clients already. Um, they're in their twenties. They're, they're casually dating still. Um, they're not in a serious relationship and they're defining these goals for themselves. And they are absolutely setting themselves up for success, uh, having these conversations now. And then even socially, um, you know, They've frozen their eggs. They've made their decisions. And sometimes freezing your eggs is not the best decision, right? But you can figure out, hey, I'm about to go into the military or start this 10-year PhD process and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So you really have to really think about what your life goals are too. Um, But if you're really content on just doing maybe like a four-year degree and your career doesn't require anything else, you know, so you're open and you're flexible, um, then maybe it's not something that you should think about right now. But I do give guidelines and parameters. You don't want to wait until like your 30s or your 40s to kind of think about revisiting the egg freezing conversation, maybe reassessing your life in your late 20s, Um, as well would be something that I would recommend. And maybe you can pursue egg freezing then if, you know, conceiving a child is is important to you. Um, And, you know, once you take control of that, you you actually don't have to fall into this, this almost sort of like rat race that a lot of my friends and my peers and even myself kind of felt uh, for a while of like, oh no, we got to find the right partner. I got to get a partner. And then sometimes you don't make the best decisions <laughs> on partners because you're trying to beat that biological clock. And um, having these conversations on the front end actually helps with so many different things, not even the biological piece, but the social and emotional piece as well. Yeah. Egg preservation is not really talked about a lot. Is it something that's covered by insurance? So typically it is covered by insurance, if your employer has opted to provide that um, uh, mm. benefit. So that's also something that I talk to people about advocating to HR when, you know, by the time that you're doing your insurance selections and all that stuff, they have already done their negotiations a few months 
few months prior. So that's something where you can uh, get. So like really big tech companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, they offer that benefit. Amazon, I believe, offers mm. that benefit. But right now there's no state mandate for fertility preservation, only if you can have like a medical clearance. So uh, if you get diagnosed with cancer, um, for example, mm-hmm. and you need chemotherapy, chemotherapy, you know, whether it's radiation or like uh, pills or IV therapy, it's extremely toxic to our reproductive system. And people are often rendered completely infertile after those treatments. Um, and then in our community, sickle cell disease uh, might affect us. And a lot of these treatments like bone marrow transplants as well, have been known to render people infertile as well, too. So it's something you can talk to your insurance company companies, lobby for, advocate for ahead of time. However, uh, when I have spoken with women um, who experienced infertility and went through treatments, um, there was a couple of them that said, I wish I would have um, counted the cost beforehand. You know, I get they. One woman spe- said specifically, "I get car insurance on my car, and I don't get into accidents, <laughs> and I've never really had to use it, but." It's nice to have when I actually, you know, get in a fender bender, you know, whenever that might happen. So um, there is the cost of the actual treatment in the process. So there's medication and somebody going in to extract the eggs. But there's this long-term storage fee, which can vary, um, which can be you know, depending on the location, if they're, if you're like in New York City, you're probably going to get a cheaper price than say, if you're like in Midwestern Kentucky uh, Mm -hmm. as well. So the storage fees is something that you pay typically every year. And maybe you could talk about every month, a monthly plan too. So that can range between like 500 and a thousand dollars a year or so. So it's not, you know, super cheap, especially if you're in school, but it's something you can talk to your parents or your guardians about the people who are going to be pressuring you to say, Hey, where are my grandbabies? You know, Hey, if you want these grandbabies, you can contribute to this fund <laughs> as well. too. So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. It, it's so important to, to be thinking about it ahead of time. Now you mentioned something that I know my audience is probably like, wait a minute, go back. So thirties, mm-hmm. late thirties, forties, if we're mm-hmm. there and we don't have children, but we want children, what can we do? Should we be doing what kind yes, of conversations yes. should we be having? Absolutely. If you're um, in your 30s and 40s and you know for a fact that you want children, you want to be the one to carry the children, go to a reproductive endocrinologist yesterday. Like go as soon as possible. One, um, so you could just do baseline testing. Um to figure out the the quality of your egg count um, or your egg count and then the quality of the eggs as well too. Um, so there's a test called anti-malarian hormone. Uh, it, it, it is given off by a lot of the follicles and the eggs. And so that's how you're able to kind of understand the quality of your eggs. Uh, and then if you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.